welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 27 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, listeners. So this month, the theme is hyperarousal. And I know you're asking what's hyperarousal. Well, it's something I see every day in people who've got sleep difficulties, not mm. just insomnia, but sleep difficulties. Mm. And it's really, really common, but it is something that's hard to explain exactly what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, we'll have a couple of experts on that will help to explain that in much more fluently than I can. So we'll give you a good understanding of what it is, why it's important to insomnia, and some things you can do about it. So what's been happening this month, Moira? What's been happening in well, sleep? Well, speaking of hyperarousal, <laughs> I think there was a lack of, there was probably under arousal in January, a really nice reset and you know, through throughout the summer holidays mm-hmm. in Australia. Yeah, things are back to normal now. <laughs> and I think that even though I'm I I wouldn't have thought that I have a lot of hyper arousal, but I'm certainly at risk of hyper arousal myself. I feel that it's something I have to work very hard at keeping a lid on things. Sometimes you, you know that racing mind and just doing too much sometimes. Because I had a, a sleep study r- relatively recently mm-hmm. Which shows that you know quite a lot of evidence of hyperarousal, which I've had, I'm taking steps to, to minimise. So it's it's quite interesting that you know someone who's been in the sleep field, don't identify as a poor sleeper. In fact, I'm always bragging about how well I sleep. Don't yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. I think that it's yeah it's something. It's it's really good. I think it's something that all of us are not immune to. Yeah, and it's mm. a nice reflection. You know, I certainly find too when I have some downtime, take the foot off the accelerator a bit. I could easily nap in the afternoon. I yeah. move a bit more slowly. Yeah. You know, just my own personal pace is a bit more slow yes. than during the year which just tells me that I'm doing something differently during the working year to boost up that nervous energy. Yeah, absolutely. In essence, turning up the dial on on arousal. And it's a fine line between turning it up enough that you feel like you're a bit more energetic and too much that it bubbles up and and starts to cause an issue. Absolutely. So I'm glad we're talking about this this month. So we'll move straight into the theme, given that we're already talking about and have introduced that sort of topic. So, yeah, as I talked about, hyperarousal is really important because for many people we see with insomnia, it's one of the key features that's driving the insomnia or may have even precipitated some of the sleep disturbance in the first place. And it's not listed as a sleep disorder or in either medical school training or advanced training even for sleep specialists. It's often not something that people talk about. But what about in the psychology postgraduate education, Moira? Is it something not termed in that way? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I've used the terminology only since I've been working in the sleep field. It's not a general term used much at all in the general psychology field. And it's also when I'm seeing people, often people in the lay community, they sort of get, hey, if I'm too buzzed or I'm you know, too stressed out or too busy, it's going to make me have trouble getting to sleep. But in actual fact, the more common presentation with hyperarousal is trouble waking up during the night. Yeah, the maintenance. Yeah, yeah. so waking during the night, having trouble getting back to sleep. So often people don't put that together. Mm. They'll say, look, it's not being too busy, not being sort of over aroused was the issue because I can get to I sleep. Because I can get to sleep. They think that's the, the outcome measure. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where hyperarousal is often the hidden thing that is a big contributing factor to lots of people with sleep problems. So to help us understand that a bit better, I've had the chance to talk to Professor Dieter Ryman. 
And Dita wrote a really great article in 2010 in Sleep Medicine Reviews on hyperarousal and its role in insomnia. And it was because he explained things so nicely in that article was why I wanted to talk to him Mm. to be able to get that explanation from him about what is it and how does it relate to insomnia. And Dita's the Head of Psychology and Psychophysiology at the Centre for Mental Health Disorders at the University of Freiburg. And he's also recently, since the start of 2017, been the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Sleep Research. So thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast. How would you define hyperarousal? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, if you look at the literature, there is not so much of a definition, but the implicit understanding is, well, we have two systems governing sleeping and waking, and one would be the arousal system or the ARAS, as it's called in the literature, the ascending reticular activating system, and the other system would be the sleep system, to put it very simple and hyperarousal in that sense would be that the arousal system is somehow hyperactive either in relation to the sleep system or either in relation to to good sleepers if we look at poor sleepers so uh, and, and we can measure that on several levels so we would we would conceptualize this as an overactivity on several axes, the autonomic system, HPA system, the EEG, and, all, uh, and stuff like that. It's the sort of thing almost as a clinician, like you get the smell of it or you can sense it, you know, when you're listening to somebody talk about their sleep. But what are some of those physiological measures? You know, how could we measure it in either clinical practice or research? The simplest thing is if, if you look at the autonomous nervous system and if you look at, for example, ECG, heart rate, heart rate variability. And there are now numerous studies showing that if you look at the heart rate, heart rate variability during the day, during sleep, it's, it's more, this system is more active, is more variable uh, in, in poor sleepers, in insomnia, uh, compared to good sleepers. And how might physiological hyperarousal contribute to the clinical disorder of insomnia? You know, how do those two things interact? It's probably insomnia is not just hyperarousal. There definitely there might be people with insomnia don't show very strong signs of hyperarousal. I guess at least 50, 60, 70 percent they show these signs and they do experience it subjectively because they try to get to sleep and they say, I'm quite tired and I close my eyes and suddenly it's like a switch turned around. I feel my heartbeat in the ear. I feel nervous and then cognition start and all of that. So I guess it's, it's quite a major factor. It's not the only factor in insomnia, but it's a major factor. And many people with insomnia do not only show objective signs if you measure it by measuring the autonomous nervous system, by measuring cortisol, by looking at the EEG or stuff like that. But they also subjectively experience it. And they say, this is something I'm, they're not saying I'm a but they're saying I'm nervous, I'm ruminating, I can't stop this. So somebody in my body is, is, is going wrong at a time where I should rest. Yeah, and that feeling can often then exacerbate or turn up the cognitive arousal and concern about sleep, yeah. which in turn can drive the physiological arousal. And it can become yeah. a bit self-perpetuating. Yeah, I think that's that's really an important point that these systems are interacting. So if you have insomnia, not only if you have insomnia, but 
everybody likes to sleep and you're tired, you want to sleep and so you realize it's not working and then the cognitions kick in, what will happen tomorrow and then you get more aroused. So it could also be some kind of conditioning taking place that people who are vulnerable to react not being able to not being able to sleep with arousal and then they get into a vicious circle and the vicious circle between psychological aspects, emotional aspects, it's the arousal, also the measurable arousal, physiological signs and cognitions kick in as well. And then in the end, you get the impression that you're un- unable to sleep at all. And that change in thinking about sleep disturbance or insomnia with arousal being a more important focus, how's that really changed how we approach treatment for insomnia? If you look at the main treatment approach for a long time, those were the benzodiazepines and the Z drugs. And, and actually all of these drugs have a strongly in the, these are inhibiting drugs, you know, they inhibit arousal in the brain that and also alcohol, for example, uh-huh. which too is unfortunately used frequently by also by many people too. So actually this suppression of arousal has something to do with treatment of insomnia. I think that was known or is known for a long time, but there have been more specific ways. If you look now at newer drugs like the orexine antagonists, orexine as a major awake factor, arousing factor, and there is this new type of uh, drug treatment, the orexine antagonist. And on the other hand, I think also on in our, if you look at our psychotherapeutic approaches, there is already for a long time people used relaxation treatments uh-huh. like Jacobson and people using now, uh, people using yoga, people using mindfulness, and all of these treatments are actually aim at, you know, reducing arousal or controlling arousal. Sometimes the focus, you know, when people come to see me, their focus is on sleep, but the blind spot often is how much they're aroused across the day which in turn is driving a lot of difficulties with sleep. It's a very important issue that we now, we think that when we talk of hyperarousal, we think of a 24-hour hyperarousal. And it's especially experienced by people at night, and so they can't sleep. And this is what they say to their doctor, to their therapist, I have a sleep problem. But actually, if you look, if you talk the day about their days with them, and you see many of these people are very active, they are totally under stress most of the time. Mostly they don't realize and say, this is normal, I have to cope with that. Uh, It's really an important factor also naturally, not only, and, and we think in this really insomnia more a 24-hour disturbance and not focus so much on the sleep, but really also focus on the day and find, you know, these people should do, they should expose themselves to light. They should do some exercise. They should have real breaks in between relaxing, stuff like that. That's also very helpful. I agree with that, but it's often not what people are looking for. You know, people come and see us in a sleep clinic and say, right, I want to fix the sleep and aren't necessarily yeah. looking for us to tell them to restructure their lifestyle and, you know, learn to manage stress yeah, and yeah, how yeah. they manage energy across the day. So it can be a hard sell to, to get them on board with yeah. that. That's absolutely true. I mean, some people want the quick solution and they will always go, maybe they prefer the sleeping pill in comparison to changing a lifestyle. But also, if, if you know, if you look at all the CBTI measures, I do a lot of also sleep restriction, stimulus control. And this is something too, which people don't expect if you run the sleep restriction for a few weeks. That's what people, people are surprised and saying, are you crazy? You prescribe me less sleep? <laughs> but yeah. in the end, it perfectly works. And people are very surprised, but afterwards they say, well, why didn't I have myself the idea to do this? Because usually the insomniacs tend to prolong their time in bed in order to 
heighten the chance to get more sleep, but this never works. Given this understanding of hyperarousal and its importance in sleep, what should we be doing in the future or how should we be looking at developing new treatments or new approaches? There are very interesting approaches concerning electrostimulation. There have been studies now, but this is coming from basic research, showing that we can influence our brainwaves by transcranial direct stimulation by these approaches. And people are really thinking about, you know, you would wear a device and this would give you certain electrical impulses and this could have an impact on brainwaves. The interesting thing is that we also find an increased frequency of fast frequencies like the beta waves in the sleep of insomniacs. And it's people are thinking about and experimenting, could we do some electrical stimulation suppressing these beta waves? Maybe this would stop the ruminations. Maybe this would calm people down. This could be a very interesting approach, I think, uh, to try. Uh, this out. There is, uh, I think, Eric Nofzinger, you're going to talk to him. He has this new brain cooling device. I think this is also basically something which, which acts on hyperarousal or reduces hyperarousal. So this has really to be tested and seen if we suppress signs of physiological hyperarousal, will people then get more sleep? Will this help to them? I could imagine that. And I think also biofeedback trainings during the day, learning to, I don't know, control your brainwaves to some extent to reduce heightened activity and all of that stuff. This could be very new, uh, very different treatments to what we have now. Thanks a lot for those insights. Yeah, thank you. So did you like Dita's explanation of hyperarousal? Yes, yes. Thanks. Thanks to you and thanks to Dita. That was excellent. And yeah, what a great, nice, succinct way of uh, defining it and and just explaining in really simple terms what it actually is. Certainly he's... Oh, he's the man, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, you and I work in this area every single day and I'm mm. always talking to people about hyperarousal. Mm. But just listening to him talk, I'm like, oh, yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. Mm. Oh, I could use that. Very, and, Yeah, very useful. Because uh, obviously he's, na- he's a big name, lots of papers um, yeah, over many, many years. So he's obviously a, a clinician as well. Oh, absolutely. I don't know when he finds the time because <laughs> his research output is just it's huge. Yeah, mm. very prolific mm. and very high quality work as well. So yeah, lovely to hear that perspective and really explain so clearly. What other highlights were in that for you? Well, it also made me reflect on some things we're increasingly thinking about as well. If, if there is that heightened nervous energy or sense of hyperarousal and often people will tell us, well, look, you know what, I'm not particularly busy or I don't feel that I'm stressed. Yeah. Well, then uh, what is that? And so maybe for sometimes it, it boils down to personality factors and the sort of things people don't think, well, it's not different for me. This mm. is just how I roll. And so there are some personality types or traits where sort of running on high nervous energy is almost the sort of modus operandi. Yeah. And that group yeah. are at higher risk for hyperarousal and therefore yeah. for insomnia. So, mm. you know, perfectionism. Yes. <laughs> I can admit to a bit of that. <laughs> or sort of being a bit more obsessive about yeah. things. Yeah. Because things have to be just so. Yes. And probably maybe less expressive types sometimes who we don't want to, they're not really ranters and ravers, not wanting to complain too much. And, ex- and more internalised things. Mm-hmm. That's also a big personality factor, I think. So in, in that way, too, people think, oh, I'm not that stressed because they might be suppressing a lot of that or just internalising uh-huh. it, not, not ranting and raving all, all over the shop. And then it, it can come out in, in the night time, in the wee hours, like the nervous system can detect what your you know cognitive awareness isn't detecting. And I think it also highlights you know, why we've shifted you know the work you and I have done together over the last five or ten years looking at mindfulness and sort of mm-hmm. add-on 
treatments to cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia mm-hmm. that specifically address arousal yeah, over and above the CBT components. Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, we all know we're big fans of CBTI and we know the importance of that, but it doesn't really specifically address arousal. Let's talk to him again another time because there's so much more we could talk about. Oh, any time. Yeah, he was, mm. you know, one, very generous with his time. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Dita, for <laughs> giving up your time. And two, incredibly insightful and really helpful. Yeah, yeah. So one of the other concepts around hyperarousal is thinking about how the brain works during sleep. Now, we've already heard that there's a complex interplay between the wake-promoting systems and the sleep-promoting systems in the brain, but it's actually more complicated than that. The brain sleeps in different compartments. It doesn't sleep as a single unit. Mm. And there's a term called regional sleep that's sort of emerged and been used much more over the last few years, which really reflects a lot of research that's been done looking at brain imaging, both in people who are good sleepers and people with insomnia or poor sleepers. And some of that work has shown that in people who are poor sleepers, different parts of the brain don't shut off as well as they do in people that are good sleepers. And maybe that's part of the physiology of the hyperarousal. And therefore, maybe you could do something locally or do something to impact just on those parts of the brain and help with that switching off process. Someone who's really driven research in that area over a number of years is Professor Eric Nofsinger. He's from the University of Pittsburgh and has got a long history in brain imaging research in insomnia. And based on some of that work, has been involved in developing a treatment for insomnia called EBB, the EBB Insomnia Therapy Device, that looks at cooling the forehead and trying to help with shutting off the prefrontal cortex. So I did try to get an interview with Professor Eric Nofsinger, but despite a number of attempts, we just couldn't make it happen. So we'll talk a little bit about some of his research just to give the background, and that'll give you an idea about why I was interested in talking to him. So the reason I was interested in talking to Eric Nofsinger is he's done a lot of work on imaging to look at how functionally the brains of people with insomnia differ from the brains of people who are good sleepers uh, during sleep. And really, you could summarise his findings to in that there are some parts of the brain that remain active and behave in a more alert way, even during sleep in people with insomnia compared to good sleepers. And those parts of the brain include areas or or systems such as the default mode network and regions such as the prefrontal cortex. In essence, it can lead to that feeling in insomnia of being partially awake or having some awareness of the environment despite being asleep, which in turn can lead to that underestimation of how much sleep's actually occurring that we commonly see in people with insomnia, particularly with hyperarousal. Uh, in a small case series that Uh, we looked at, we actually haven't published that, we presented the results at one of the Australasian sleep meetings. We showed that people with insomnia actually estimated that they were sleeping two hours less than they were when we looked at what was actually happening in the brain compared to sleep diaries. Now that's not everyone with insomnia, but this is a particularly hardcore people group of people with quite challenging insomnia who were insisting they slept quite short periods, only around three hours per night, but in fact were sleeping for around five and a half hours per night when we measured what the brain's doing. But if we were more sophisticated and used some of Professor Nofsinger's techniques to look at imaging, we probably would have seen that there were parts of the brain behaving like they're awake and parts of the brain behaving like they're asleep. And this phenomenon has led to that term regional sleep, not thinking of the brain as a single unit during sleep, but as multiple different regions that all behave differently during sleep, depending on different states and depending on different conditions. So based on that research, Professor Nofsinger, together with uh, some collaborators, have developed a device called the EBB device, or the EBB sleep, they're now calling it, which looks at cooling the forehead, which is 
the region of the brain where the prefrontal cortex uh, sits. And the theory being, if you cool the forehead, it will help to reduce that increased metabolism in the prefrontal cortex and then help with sleep onset. I've done a number of clinical trials, and in particular, a randomized control trial in around 100 patients, showing that it got people into stage one sleep faster, into stage two sleep faster, with a mean of just under around 40 minutes shortening of the time taken to get into those two sleep stages. So that paper's been accepted and it's going to be published in the journal Sleep in later on in 2018. The device still isn't commercially available. It's available in some limited centres in the US, about 19 centres that um, have been specifically selected as places you could go to be, to trial the Ebb Sleep device and expected to be more widely available in the United States through uh, 2019. Really interested to see how that goes once it's out sort of in the wild and people are using it more broadly. Our colleague Simon Frankel talked about it on an earlier episode. He trialled the device at one of the sleep meetings in the US and did find it very cold on his forehead and wasn't really sure how he was going to be able to go sleeping with that type of device. But the results show that it did actually work in people with insomnia. So really, we've just got to see how it works once people are actually out using it in their homes and using it outside of a research setting. Is it something that's practical that's really going to work on a broader basis? It's so interesting about the different regions of the brain and sleep can be different in different parts of the brain. I don't think I was actually fully aware of that. What's your take home from all of this? That the brain is a complex organism. (laughs) That's Uh, new. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it really does, you know, with this increasing understanding that different parts of the brain behave differently, both in different sleep stages and also between good sleepers and not Mm -hmm. so good sleepers or people with insomnia, it does open the door for lots of different potential Uh, therapies. You know, can you do something locally to just impact on one part of the brain that makes it behave more like a good sleeper's brain as compared to how the brain behaves in someone who's had poor sleep or or had insomnia? Yeah. Oh, I think there's there's so much more. I'm excited by that. Couldn't we be doing more already with um, perhaps with the EEG when we've got such tiny little, we look at just the occipital and the central area of the brain, but really already couldn't we be doing a little bit more? Yeah. So the technology's sort of there. So the technology is there to collect that data. So standard sleep study will do six EEG leads, occipital, Mm. central, frontal. Mm. And you can actually do EEGs using 64 channels or even 256 channels Mm. to really try and regionalise where different brain activity is. The trouble with bringing that to the clinic at the moment is the data processing. What do you do with that amount of data? There's so much of it. There's just so much of it. So to stage sleep with a six-channel EEG is about a good hour to two hours for a sleep technology. That's not practical, is it? Yeah, so Mm. it's not practical for everyday clinical practice. It's starting to be done in a research setting. Yeah. And... Hopefully, we'll be able to, you know, with changes in technology, use that more as a tool in the clinic to be able to map out how brain regional factors impact on sleep in given individuals and use that better understanding of the physiology within a given individual to then target treatment and work on specific treatment strategies. So watch this space, I guess. So hopefully that's given you a better understanding of hyperarousal and its role in insomnia. And for people who've seen me, you now understand why I keep banging on about it's not all about what's happening at night and don't focus on the sleep so much, but actually got to think about what happens through the day. If you're looking for more information on hyperarousal, I'll put the link to Dita Ryman's paper in Sleep Medicine Reviews in the show notes. I'll also put a link to a device, the Ebb 
insomnia treatment, which it looks at uh, cooling the prefrontal cortex and has been approved by the FDA as an insomnia treatment. And there's a video that I've done on Sleep Hub that looks at the stress performance curve and talks a bit about that as a model for nervous energy and hyperarousal and some of its role in insomnia and sleep disturbance. So what's your clinical tip, Maura? Well, I was going to say that that leads my clinical tip of the month leads very nicely into exactly what you just said. And I think it's really picking up what Dieter Reinman was talking about is that we've got to be aware as clinicians or and, and directing our clients, our patients, to the fact that being aware of the 24-hour arousal issues, not just the sleep itself. Mm-hmm. It's about like directing the patient to the hours well before they even go to bed. When they get up for the day, what they do then too. So those, all those hours, say they're a six-hour sleeper, mm-hmm. much really interested in the 18 hours outside of that period they're having trouble with. Uh-huh. So they're coming to see you about this particular period, but really redirect their focus and attention to the other parts of the day in which they're hyper-aroused. And setting the scene, I think, if you like, for why at night there's just too much circulating cortisol or, or yeah. adrenaline or the like. So, yeah, it's really nice. It's just nice. It gives us, we've been talking about that for some time, but just a reminder is a clinical tip yeah. for people, both, you know, the people who are clinicians or people who might be listening who do have difficulty with their, managing their hyperarousal, yeah. to think about the day, not just the night. Yeah, it's not about the supercharged switching off secret yeah. in, the, in the five minutes just before you go yeah, to bed. Yeah, that's right. It, it, you can't go, 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 do a quick little something on your app, five-minute meditation or something, and then expect to be able to sleep well. It's so is that, the, is that what you're looking for in terms of the difference between sleep when you and I were kids some years ago? I'm not saying how many years ago. <laughs> 40 but, years but, ago. But, but some years ago, you know, is that that space for the winding yeah, down per- is perhaps. different? Perhaps. Well, I think that our, the daytime was very, very different, wasn't it? The, the stimulation that was... I say to my kids, we were just bored <laughs> most of the day looking for something to do, like roaming around on your bikes. Or It wasn't so much stimulation. There was, you weren't overwhelmed with information, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Yeah, I think the stimulation levels are very, very different and we need to really – we all know that, but we forget that it's a really obvious thing when we're thinking about sleep because people just focus on the evening. They don't. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, what do you mean? It doesn't matter what I did this morning. I say, yeah, it does. Tell me, tell me about your days. Tell me how you feel your days at the moment. And that will tell us a lot about the, what's happening at night. So what about your pick of the month? Remember it's game on this year. <laughs> no, not really. I'm not that competitive. But I, I'm just jealous of your good picks of the month that you got. What have you come up with this month? Yeah, I've gone with a book again. And <laughs> yeah. you'd be pleased to know I haven't tried too hard. So this is a very <laughs> mainstream book. So the book that Arianna Huffington wrote uh, some years ago called Thrive. So not her latest one, that's Sleep Revolution, but this one's Thrive. And I actually think Thrive is a better book than the Sleep Revolution one. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Arianna, (laughs) I hate to to say that. The reason I like Thrive, and it's really relevant for our podcast this month, is that one of the premises of Thrive is that Arianna Huffington was busy, you know, highly successful businesswoman, and with that not sleeping much, and essentially collapsed whacked her head on the bathroom sink and sort of cut her head open. And that was the realisation that you just can't get away with both, you know, cutting corners and not allowing enough time for sleep and the impacts of being overly busy. Mm -hmm. And then based on that, wrote the book Thrive and highlighting the importance of allowing space for sleep, but also adequate nutrition, adequate physical fitness, adequate mental health, you know, all those ingredients of thriving and being well. 
So basically reducing your hyperarousal and therefore thriving. That's it. So that's why it's a good pick for this month. What about for you, Maura? Well, similarly, I thought just keep with the theme. And it's not a new app. It's been around for several years, but it's just a really, really good one. And it's one that is evidence-based and it's been it's shown that it does have efficacy. Like people who are using this app called Smiley Mind, which is actually helping people to meditate with mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. And it's a Melbourne-based little group, you know, set, set it up. and it's But they're international now. I think people listening to this all around the world should go to the, you know, wherever they get their apps and they'll be able to find it and download it for free. And what I like about it is it's got different age groups. You can, I think, I don't know off the top of my head, like say under seven or, you know, seven to 16 and 17 yeah, to... Yeah, it does to, that really nicely. They, it does, just, just has different things because, you know, you know, a child is going to be wanting a different thing for their meditation and how they're going to learn how to address their hyperarousal mm-hmm. via meditation to an adult or, you know, so it's really good, different different lengths and, and different pictures. I recommend people to get on board that, uh, check out their website and I think they're just a really good outfit at Smiling Minds. Nice pitch. So things that are coming up in sleep, now that we're back into the working year and are heading off into you know, a long, long time before holidays and, and summer comes around again, yeah, check in on your own degree of hyperarousal and as we've been talking about, if you feel like mm. those nervous energy levels are a bit too high, yeah, that may have an impact impact on sleep. So look at just checking in and putting in place some strategies to to bring those things down. Any other things coming up for you, Maura? No, not not that I can think of. I think I'm looking forward to next month's episode that we're going to be talking about sleep and cancer. So stay tuned for that. That's going to be a great episode. We've got so many ideas all the time, but we're really open to other suggestions too. Really would really love to hear from listeners. Please write to us with your suggestions. I think you all know the podcast at sleephub.com.au and certainly you know leave us a review on the iTunes website if you if you do like us talk about it spread the word about about this particular podcast yeah that's all that's all from from me for this month thanks very much Moira and healthy sleep for everybody yeah thanks for listening and we'll catch you next month this podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition